Many of you have probably heard of James Thurber. Um, in fact, probably all of you have heard of James Thurber, but you have forgotten that you've heard of James Thurber. Who, who here has any idea who James Thurber is? Anybody? A few of you, maybe? A few of you? Uh, some tentative hands. James Thurber was a, an essayist, a humorist in the first part of the 20th century for the New Yorker magazine. He was prolific in his writing and very popular in his time. But he is most remembered for a short story published 80 years ago this year in The New Yorker called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, it was actually made into two movies, one very shortly after the essay came out starring Danny Kaye, who, for those of us who might not be very familiar with Danny Kaye, is the guy not being Crosby and White Christmas, all right? <laughs> So, um, so Dan, it starred Danny Kaye, and then a few years ago, Ben Stiller was uh, in, a, in a movie loosely based on uh, that particular essay. It resonates because of the, the situation that it depicts. It depicts this very ordinary guy named Walter Mitty, obviously. In fact, he is extraordinary in his ordinariness. There is nothing remarkable about him at all. And in fact, he wishes his life were just far more impactful than what it really was. And so as he goes through his daily life being tugged along in tow by a domineering wife, he um, imagines details of his situation being somewhat different where he engages as a hero. So he takes these little minor details and he has these fantastical daydreams about being a hero in that particular situation. And I think it resonates because all of us tend to engage in hero daydreams. We really do. There's not a boy in this building who at some point hasn't taken a basketball and been at a, at a net and three, two, one, shoot and miss and then do it over and over again, imagining being in a daydream and, and winning the NBA title or the NCAA championship or to do it with a bat. We, we all tend to have these these hero daydreams that we create about ourselves that are really meant to kind of lift us from our ordinariness and help us to escape to a world of fantasy. But as we get older, it is, it is a fantastical escape that is more deep in its impact than just imagining yourself as the hero of a sporting event. We find ourselves imagining scenarios where we were more heroically courageous to stand for something more heroically loving, more heroically compassionate, and I think at times, perhaps especially, more heroically faithful. We live in a Western culture here of, of Christianity that actually feeds our need to have these heroic daydreams. Because let's just face it, um, it's easy to be a Christian. It, in fact, you need no further great example of how easy it is to be a Christian in modern America than to listen to Christians complain about how difficult it is. The, the people around the world who are truly having to suffer for their faith <laughs> scoff at what we call our suffering for the faith. And so we engage in these daydreams about ourselves. And so we will imagine ourselves, if it, if it came down to the firing squad or the hangman's noose or the guillotine, standing boldly and proclaiming our faith in Jesus Christ. And yet when the circumstances um, have far less at stake, we, we do far less than that. I mean, we'll, 
barely whisper the name of Jesus, and then only if we're absolutely certain that everybody will respond in a friendly fashion around us. Or we will laugh at things about which we shouldn't laugh so that we'll fit in and not stand out. Or we will be quiet about certain situations that confront us morally or ethically because to stand out and speak against it would maybe flag that we're a Christian. And yet, in our daydreams, we think, ah, I would give my life for Jesus. And so, what I'm trying to do is to highlight for us um, how desperately, especially as we go deeper into the 21st century, how desperately we will need to, to have a boldness, a faithfulness from our lives that really makes a difference. And so the question is, how can I have that kind of confidence? Well, we're going to learn today from 2 Timothy. So if you would please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. If this is your first time with us at Blue Valley Baptist Church, uh, you need to know that a few weeks ago we began a journey through this Bible book called 2 Timothy. It is a personal letter written by a man named Paul who uh, was used by God to establish the church in the first century to a young man he was mentoring named Timothy. And I've said this before, I'm going to say this over and over again. The reason he's writing Timothy, by and large, is because Timothy was suffering a bad case of nerves. He was feeling overwhelmed by his cultural situation and wanting to, to kind of pull back from being bold in his faith. And he was being intimidated by actually his church situation with some opposition and was pulling back from actually being bold in his faith. And Paul is writing to try to encourage Timothy to be bold and say, to him, you, you can do this. You can have a boldness that will make a difference in your world for an eternity. And he begins to try to help him do that in our verses today. And we're going to see two principles at work that we can apply to our lives. And here's the first principle. If you want to have a boldness that makes a difference, you need to live a God-centered life. A God-centered life. Now, that's a simple statement. There's several things that are going to feed it. So just right now, if you're one of these people that have to write in and fill in your blanks or your world is not right, you fill that blank in. And then let's look at the Word and see what the Word actually says to inform that and show us that. When you get to verse 12, Paul has just talked about the greatness of his ministry and the greatness of Christ and how um, you can live with confidence, live with confidence that the gospel is true. And then he begins verse 12 with these words, speaking of the gospel, which is why I suffer as I do. I am suffering for this gospel. I am in prison. He is in prison. He is perhaps days away from his own execution at the hands of Nero. I'm suffering for this thing that I've just extolled the virtues of for you, Timothy. And that's going to cause Timothy to say, man, I wish... Paul's not scared of nothing. I, just, I wish I could be like Paul. He's not frightened of anything. And Paul is interacting as he writes this with Timothy and knows that he's thinking this way. And so he goes on to say, I'm not ashamed. I am bold in this. But then he says, why? For I know whom I have believed. And if you're Baptist uh, for a long time, you always want to read that believed, uh, but it is believed. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, here's where we have to ask some questions. 
what, what is it that has been entrusted to him that Paul is confident can be guarded by God until the day of judgment. And so some people that study this passage of Scripture say, well, he's talking about his personal salvation. He is absolutely confident as he faces death that death will not be the end of him. And that commitment, that allegiance that he has made to God as as his Savior through Christ Jesus will be able to keep and sustain that salvation through that final trial of life until his ultimate uh, salvation, his uh, being with Christ forever. Some people say he's talking about his salvation. Some people say he's talking about his ministry because he's been talking about his ministry so far to Timothy. And so here is, is what they think he might be saying. He's saying, you know, I'm confident that the ministry that God has given me, that he's entrusted to me, will continue to have effect even after I'm gone. That, that the God who created in me this call is going to continue on his ministry even after I'm not here. And so the question that we have to ask is, is which of those is he talking about? Is he talking about God's capacity to, to guard his salvation through his death? Is he talking about God's capacity to guard his ministry through his death? And it probably won't surprise you when I say to you the answer is yes. Both of those things are at play. Paul can't really separate his, his salvation from his ministry and his ministry from his salvation. We saw last week how his call to ministry, like all of our calls to ministry, because we all have a call, grows out of the fact that we are saved. It was an organic reproduction of the fact that he was saved. So Paul here is saying that the reason, Timothy, that I am able to be bold, the reason that it appears to your untrained eyes that I ain't scared of nothing, is not because I have some kind of interpersonal strength that I'm relying on. My confidence is not in my ability to be faithful. My confidence is in God's faithfulness to me. That is why I am able to suffer as I do, be bold as I do, have a confidence that makes a difference. And then he continues on. If you look at verse 13, He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. This is his way of saying, I want you to continue to teach the things that I have taught you. I want you to to not lose sight of the importance of sound doctrine. That's a word that we might use for it. Sound doctrine, orthodox teaching. Don't lose sight of that. Continue to preach and teach these things that I have told you. Continue to study these things as I've led you to study them. But then he says, do these things in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So he is saying here that that you can have confidence in the truth of what I've taught you and the confidence in the truth of what you were learning because these things are ultimately rooted in our faith in Christ Jesus, His love for us, the relationship that He has with us. Doctrine, the study of all of this, is not to, meant to be an end to itself. The study of these things, these, these sound words which I'm encouraging you to continue to teach uh, yourself and to teach others are ultimately rooted in this relationship that we have with Christ. Jesus is the point of doctrine. There's something interesting that happens uh, among young men who are preparing for ministry if they go to college and study ministry or if they're going to seminary and study ministry. Is the first time that they're exposed to a theology class, they just honestly become insufferable. They, they really do. 
they'll get their theology book and they'll begin to have a professor wax eloquent and stretch their mind beyond just the surface reading of things that they've ever, that they've had before and suddenly they think they know everything, right? Everything. And so then they're always wanting to engage you in these conversations. Always wanting to engage you in these doctrinal conversations. What do you think? What do you think about how sovereign is God? I mean, is God sovereign over every tiny little thing in the universe? Or is free will mixed in that? Or is free will more important? God responding to it. And then if you don't answer like they're prepared to answer, it's like, wrong! And then they'll attack you, you know, because they've got to know everything. And they're honestly insufferable. Their, Their entire life becomes captured by whatever book of theology. For me, because I was one of these guys, it was the big green book. I had a big green theology book, and I, I, was, um, I was a madman with that big green theology book for a good long time. What happens with these young men, what happened with me, is that you lose sight that Jesus is the point. The point is not the book. The point is not the teaching. The point is the Jesus that is underneath all of that. So he's saying, you need to be bold, Timothy, in continuing to preach soundly like you have been instructed. But you will not find that in yourself. Where will you find it? You will find it in faith and love in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the point. Root your confidence there. And then in verse 14, he says this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And again, I think um, that, that Paul is, is speaking of, of the ministry um, that he has bequeathed to Timothy, but also talking to Timothy about his salvation. And he says that you are to guard this, you are to continue to make every effort to be faithful, not based on, again, some inner personal strength that you have been able to conjure up on your own. Instead, you're to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see what he's done in really rapid succession in three verses. He's, he's, he's roped Timothy into the idea that, that, that Paul is, is just not scared of anything. I'm suffering for this gospel that has been entrusted to me. But then once he has him, he says, but here's, here is why I'm confident. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with a God who is faithful to me, a Jesus who saved me, and the Holy Spirit that sustains me. He's saying the reason I'm confident is because I have a God-centered life. And that's ultimately where confidence comes from. And this is so countercultural to, to Americans because we, we continue to believe this myth about ourselves that we are all independent, wildly, autonomously independent, self-determined, and completely interpersonally capable. And when we're called upon to, to be confident for our faith, we try to draw on that. And what we typically in church life, in Christian life, call boldness really is just a thinly veiled arrogance. And if you continue to try to live believing that you indeed are all that, God, I promise you, will get you so far out over your skis 
that you realize pretty much you've got nothing unless he is the one active. He's done that with me in my ministry. I mean, anybody that knows me very well at all knows that I'm not necessarily a person that has lacked for confidence. I mean, uh, it has been said of me when I was younger, you know, he's sometimes wrong, rarely in doubt. And, uh, and <laughs> that was absolutely true. And I didn't have anything in the early days of my ministry that would cause that to go away. I, I, I had successful ministries. I had been a successful youth minister in two different places. And then I had been a successful pastor in two different places. And so when I showed up at the church that I pastored prior to this one, I didn't say this out loud because that would be foolish, but in my mind, as I walked in, I thought, it'll be okay, guys. I'm here. <laughs> and um, I remember, and the vividness with which I remember this will tell you how impactful it was for me. And this is, uh, this is more transparent with you than probably I ought to be or even comfortable in being, but I just want you to see uh, because it shows and highlights um, how God had to get a hold of me. We were in a meeting, and there was a delicate church matter that had to be addressed. And to show you how vivid this was, I can walk you now to the room where I was at that church when this meeting took place. I can tell you who some of the people were and where they were sitting around the table, and I can walk you to the place I was standing. And all of this conversation was going on about this delicate matter. What are we going to do? And I said these words, and this is shameful. I said these words. I said, you give me a microphone in five minutes and I can win the room. Anybody care to guess what happened? <laughs> I did get the mic and I did not win the room. And that was but one example of repeated episodes in my life as pastor of that church where God told me, you know what, I don't really need you. And, and I sure don't need that arrogance, and I sure don't need that cockiness. I don't need any of it. But here's what I do need. I need you to be yielded to me. And I need you to understand that boldness required for ministry and for being a, a pastor of a church cannot be what the world calls it because that's arrogance. It needs to be yieldedness and it needs to be rooted in my faithfulness to you, Derek. And it needs to, to be rooted in this relationship that I have given you with Christ Jesus and it needs to be sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That's what it means to live a God-centered life where you understand that it doesn't have anything to do with you, and it is anything. Your marriage, being a parent, being a friend, being a worker, it does not have anything to do with you, and it has everything to do with God Almighty. It has everything to do with Him. And you say, okay, well, I get that. How do I do that? How do I have that kind of God-centeredness? Well, Scripture tells us how to have it, and what I'm about to say to you is not at all profound or revolutionary. In fact, it's very, very simple. How you develop that God-centeredness is through Scripture reading, through prayer, and through memorization of Scripture, and meditating on Scripture, 
and spending times alone reflecting on the goodness of God. That's, that's how you develop a God-centeredness. It's the practice of what are called the spiritual disciplines as you engage the life of God and then your life becomes the kind of life that God would live, Christ would live, if He were in you. You say, but I do those things and I'm not feeling it. I, I still don't feel God-centered, and I still don't feel sustained by the power of God. So there's got to be something different to it, and you're right. There is something different to it. It's not doing something different, but it's doing it differently than we typically do it. It makes sure that the focus of the reading of Scripture is God, and it makes sure that the focus of prayer is engaging with God. You say, well, am I doing that? Probably not to the degree that you think you are, because a good many of us, when we're reading Scripture, can't escape the thought that, hey, I'm reading my Bible. And when we're praying, hey, I'm praying. You're you're so focused on the thing, and am I doing it right, or does that sound stupid, or, or... or those kinds of things that you never put your focus on God. And, and Jesus pointed this out to the, uh, the Jews in the Sermon on the Mount when, when he says to them, you need to continue to give to the needy and you need to continue to pray and you need to continue to fast, but you need to do it differently. When you give, don't focus on what you're giving or even the person you're giving it to, but focus on the God to whom that giving is ultimately directed. When you pray, don't do it so everybody can see it, but go off in secret so your focus can be only on the God to whom you're praying. And when you fast, don't make sure everybody can know about it. Instead, keep it a secret. It's between you and God, so your focus is on God. We we do the things that we know to do. This is not hard, but we do it with a different focus. So a God-centeredness... In life comes from a God-centeredness in our devotional habits, putting our attention on God. And there's one very important discipline that I didn't mention in that little flourish there just a second ago, but it's incredibly important, and in fact, it shows up in the the last part of our passage today, a, a passage that is so personal Um, that we might not think it's relevant to us, but it illustrates the second way that we can have a confidence, a boldness, a faithfulness that makes a difference. The first one is live a God-centered life, but the second one is to live in life-giving community. Life-giving community. Look at verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me and it's, it's not Asia as you and I might conceive it. He's speaking of the region around Ephesus where, t- where Timothy was, modern-day Turkey. And then of these that turned away, he says, among them are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. Paul's in prison at this time. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Again, we just want to pass that off. But I would commit to you that in those verses are the reasons that people give up on church and the reason that people hang on to church. We're all going to run into people who are phagellus and hermogenes in our lives, in church life. It's interesting that Paul says they turned away from him. He does not say, and it's very specific, he doesn't say they turned away from the gospel. He says they just turned away from me. Something happened, we don't know what. 
that caused them to turn their back on Paul as being an authentic leader of the Christian faith and began to undermine his testimony as an authentic leader of Christian faith to others. That's the reason he says all who are in Asia. It's hyperbole. It doesn't mean everyone. Timothy's in Asia, as he understands it. It's not everyone in a literal sense, but in a hyperbolic sense. He's saying everyone's abandoned me. These people are at the root of it, and he's being transparent here. You think I'm not scared of anything? This hurt me. This hurt me deeply. And there are people in this room right now who could go back and look at, at your life experience in church and you say, I, I can name my people who hurt me. And you still hang on to that. It's vivid. In fact, your mouth might have dried out with an adrenaline rush when, when you thought of those names. That's the reason that a lot of people give up on church because of those people. But you know why it's worth the risk of being hurt like that? Because a Christian can hurt you more deeply than anybody else. You know why the risk of being hurt like that is so important? Because you run into somebody like Onesiphorus. And here's what we find out about Onesiphorus. And this is really uh, something that, that I think you can see. Paul begins by celebrating him, saying, Lord, grant mercy to the household, his family of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. What we gather there is that his family said, look, Paul needs you. You go. We'll do without you for right now. It's more important that you come along him. And that's the reason he's celebrating the household. And so Onesiphorus left his family and he goes to Rome and he finds Paul. And you think, well, that's easy. But Paul says he sought earnestly. You know, this was not the day where you could get on the web and say, what cell and what prison is Paul in? He had to go from prison to prison to prison in order to be able to find where Paul was. So he earnestly sought him out. And when he went, he didn't care that the Romans might look upon him as a collaborator. He didn't care. He was there for Paul. He didn't care what the people who were saying that Paul was not an authentic minister of the gospel were saying. He didn't care. He was there for Paul. And so Paul is illustrating for us that there are people in God's family like Onesiphorus that we can't live without. And if we don't have those people, we'll never be able to be as bold and the faith as what we might otherwise be. You do run the risk of getting hurt in church. Maybe you'll hurt me one of these days. Maybe I've hurt you. You do run that risk, but you also find people that you can't live without and help you be faithful and to be bold. And have a confidence that makes a difference. So stop your Midi-esque daydreaming. Like Midi, creating delusions of grandeur about yourself only highlights your inadequacies without Jesus. If you want to have a boldness and a confidence to live for Jesus that will make a difference, then cultivate a God-centeredness about your life. Understand that you can only be faithful because God's faithful to you. You can only be bold because Jesus is your, is your, your friend, and you can only be bold because the Holy Spirit is empowering you. Live a God-centered life, and then live in life-giving community. You're not, go you're not going to have that by sitting in a pew. You're going to have to connect on a relational level. You're going to have to risk getting hurt. But if you'll do that, you'll find what you need 
to when it's called upon and it all matters, to be bold and not ashamed in your faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please.